Amen. That was wonderful. Thank you for that. What a blessing. Thank you for that testimony as well. The book of Habakkuk, chapter number three. And we will go ahead and dismiss children ages four going into the sixth grade. And you can meet the Fullers there in the back of the auditorium as uh, they are headed back that way. And so children ages four going into the sixth grade, you are welcome to join. encourage you to Head on back to the back of the auditorium and follow the Fullers over to the Fellowship Hall. They'll have a wonderful children's church program for you. And it's a ministry that I hope that we'll be able to uh, eventually uh, have on a regular basis here, as the Lord would allow. And so we're thankful for the Fullers' willingness uh, to hold the children's church today. Habakkuk chapter number 3. Habakkuk chapter number 3. I took a class in seminary on the minor prophets and it was from the hardest professor I ever had but he was my favorite and probably one of the best professors uh, that I ever had and I had to memorize uh, passages from each of the minor prophets including uh, these three verses in Habakkuk 3 uh, as well as another passage uh, earlier in Habakkuk 3 and the Lord used that class to give me a love for these smaller, relatively obscure prophets or books by these minor prophets because they're, they're a little difficult sometimes for us to, to dig into and to kind of wade through. There's visions and there's uh, some of the allegorical language sometimes and, and we get a little intimidated sometimes by uh, these minor prophets, these books, we don't quite understand sometimes the historical context and some of the prophecies. And that class was a tremendous help to me because it really opened my eyes and, and really helped me see the wonders of the Word of God, even in uh, these books of the Bible that are often overlooked or that are sometimes difficult to, to navigate through and to study. And uh, it was a, 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 a curriculum that we used in our high school or our junior high uh, several years ago, I had an opportunity to, to substitute, and it was a class that specifically dealt with the book of Habakkuk in this uh, book that we were using, in this textbook that we were using, and I had an opportunity to go through with a group of junior high or high schoolers uh, through an overview of the book of Habakkuk. But today, we'll do a quick overview, but I really want to come back to Habakkuk 3 and land there in verses 17 through 19, but we have to begin really in chapter 1 of the book of Habakkuk in verse number one. And we see the burden which Habakkuk, the prophet, did see. And that's the first point of the message this morning, a prophet's burden. A prophet's burden. Now a prophet, a preacher, I am, I'm not a prophet in the sense that I have the ability to foretell future events. I can't do that. I, I'm I don't believe that God has given the prophetic gift today for a man to stand and to say this and this and this is going to happen in such and such a year or in such and such a time or in such and such a place. You know how there have been people who say the Lord's going to come in a certain year and it was 1988, you know, how many years ago now? Or these different prophecies that supposedly are going to be fulfilled and this man claims to have the gift to be able to foretell certain events. I, I believe that gift was given for the time that God revealed His written Word of God, the canon of Scripture, 
And now that aspect of the prophetic gift has been sealed un- until the book of Revelation and to the, the, the two prophets. But that aspect of the prophetic gift has is, is been fulfilled. It's been completed. We have the Word of God. We have the written revelation of God's Word, the 66 books of the Bible. We have the faith once delivered unto the saints. So we're not looking for somebody out there to be able to foretell the future or to get some new revelation from God through some vision or through some sign or wonder. But Habakkuk was given the gift of prophecy and was receiving revelation from God, and this was a burden. The word even could be translated oracle, but it's here translated burden because it was a burden upon the prophet's heart. This was a heavy message of judgment, a heavy message that included mercy, but there was a judgment coming for Judah. In the historical context, we know that this book was written around 640 to 615 B.C. The Assyrian Empire is weakening and the Babylonian Empire is rising to power under the authority of Nabopolassar and then eventually Nebuchadnezzar. The nation of Israel, the northern kingdom has already been conquered. 722 B.C., the Assyrians moved into the northern kingdom and they basically plundered the land of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the northern kingdom. The Assyrians were, were, were brutal people. The Assyrians didn't care about any Geneva Convention, any rules of war. Vladimir Putin is dealing with war crimes today and there's already investigations and trials and things that are being pursued over in Ukraine because of the war crimes, the atrocities. Well, what Putin is doing, sadly, is really no different because the man of the, the heart of man is depraved, desperately wicked. And, and Putin is, is really doing some of the very same kinds of things with the modern technology that the Assyrians and the Babylonians did back in the days of, of, of B.C., in the 600s and 700 BCs, B.C. years. Here's Assyria. They've conquered the northern kingdom. They're brutal. They're, they're, they're cutting off the thumbs and the big toes of kings. They're torturing the leaders so that they can't hold swords, so they can't walk. They're, 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 they're raping and pillaging the land and the people, murdering, taking away captives, plundering the land of its resources, of its, of its goods, of its riches, and leaving the people impoverished or dead. The Assyrians would intermarry, and eventually from that would even come the Samaritans, uh, uh, an interracial uh, group of people that were despised by the Jews that even we learn about in the New Testament, and we've studied a little bit already. Here's Habakkuk. He is preaching, though, to the southern kingdom, Judah. And he's saying the Assyrians have already conquered the northern kingdom. Assyria, yes, is beginning to lose power, but the Babylonians are right behind them. There is judgment coming because of the sin of the land. This is a burden. I can only relate a little bit to Habakkuk. 
as a, as a preacher, as a, as a pastor, there's a burden to preaching the word of God. There's a burden to declaring the truth of the word of God. There's a burden that comes in the ministry. I'm not complaining. In no way am I complaining. I love the ministry. But there is a burden that comes with knowing God's people and knowing their needs and wanting maybe even to see change and maybe even wanting to see growth and wanting to see faithfulness and wanting to see steps of discipleship and, and to see a, a separation from the world and, and, and to see a holiness and a sanctification. And God's doing the work on me while I'm declaring the truth to you. God's working on me all week long as I'm working on sermons and I'm walking as best I can with the Lord. And there's a constant pressure and a burden in my own walk that I stay right with God, that I stay faithful to the Lord, and that I, as I declare the truth of the Word of God, that I'm not hypocritical. There's a burden for Habakkuk. It's a burden of the message. It's a burden of the fact that there's judgment coming. The burden of him having to be the one to declare this message. We know that the name Habakkuk means one who embraces. And Habakkuk had to embrace this call of God to declare this hard message in a time of sin and rebellion in the land. In verses 1 and 2 of Habakkuk 1, it seems that God is indifferent to prayer. He seems to, to be frustrated with the Lord. O Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear, even cry out unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save? He, he seems indifferent to the prayers of Habakkuk and to the righteous and the just people of the land who are trying to live right in spite of all the sin and the immorality and the idolatry and the violence and the wickedness. He, he seems to be frustrated that the Lord isn't answering prayer. There seems to be an insensitivity to sin and suffering. Verses 3 and 4. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. It sounds similar to what we're dealing with even in our own land. Habakkuk looks around and he says, God, there's all this sin, there's iniquity, there's grievance, there's spoiling, there's violence, there's strife, there's contention. Verse 4, the law is slacked, judgment, justice doth not go forth. The wicked, they compass about the righteous, and wrong judgment proceedeth. There is injustice in the land. Justice, defined biblically, is not being meted out. There's a form of justice that is unbiblical that some describe and use today. But what Habakkuk is saying is the judgment, the justice of God based on the standard of God's word is not being pursued, is not being meted out in the land. There's idolatry, there's immorality, there's violence. The, the law is, is being is slacked. It's being trampled on, it's being overlooked, it's being broken, it's being ignored. All these describe the people, the land, the culture to which Habakkuk is called to preach. And God determines a judgment. Verses 5 through 11, we won't read through the verses, but God determines a judgment. He says to Habakkuk, there is judgment coming upon Judah. I've given you this message to preach 
I know it's a burden to you, but it is a heavy burden that you must bear because it is the truth I must declare through your mouth. I have chosen you to declare this message of judgment that is coming. It's going to come upon Judah. And what really frustrated or or confused or was a struggle, a challenge for Habakkuk, is that the, the judgment of God was going to come in the form of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. So the Assyrians are going to suffer judgment from the Babylonians, and the Babylonians are going to move into the northern, or excuse me, the southern kingdom, Judah, and they are going to be the instruments of God's judgment upon God's people in the land of Judah. Habakkuk is now going to struggle with that. Why would God use a wicked nation to execute his judgment upon his people? Nebuchadnezzar would move in in 605 B.C. and he would pillage the land and take the the wisest and the best, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. 597 B.C. he'd come back in and, and he would again raid the land, do a little bit more damage, and then in 586 B.C. He came in and he conquered Jerusalem and he took Israel captive and left only the impoverished and destroyed Jerusalem. Habakkuk is is struggling. Why would God use a wicked nation to execute his judgment? Why wouldn't God just purge and purify his people some other way? These are questions in Habakkuk's mind. Yet he has to declare this message. He's warning of the coming judgment. He's preaching the the truth of the word of God. Judah has seen the northern kingdom, Israel, already fall to the Assyrians. You would think that that would have been enough to, to help them to see that it's coming their way too if they continue on the path that they are on. We know that Habakkuk in this time frame had probably, at least toward the early days of his ministry, been aware of or even possibly seen the revival under King Josiah. But after Josiah died, going to battle against the Egyptians who were trying to help the Assyrians against the Babylonians, Josiah got himself into a predicament there, and he ended up dying prematurely, it seems. After Josiah died, the revival went away, the reforms went away. Jehoiakim became the king, and Jehoiakim basically wiped out all of the reforms and the revival. He brought all the idolatry back. He opened the door to immorality and wickedness. He brought all of that sin back into the land, just opened the door. The floodgates opened, and Judah was hurtling down the slope toward their destruction. And Habakkuk was there preaching of the coming judgments. But he was struggling with how God was going to use the Babylonians. He was struggling with the burden of this message, the weight of this message. We get to Habakkuk chapter 2, and we see then God telling Habakkuk that Babylon's sin would not go unpunished. We don't have time to read through chapter 2, but we could break it up into three sections. Watch, verse 1, I will stand upon my watch. Verses 2 through 5, there is a writing, write the vision, verse 2. That goes through verse 5, and then woe in verses 6 through 20. This all has to do with Babylon. 
He's saying to Habakkuk, you trust me. You keep preaching the message to Judah. You keep preaching the message to God's people. I will deal with Babylon. And as a matter of fact, I'll give you a little idea of what's going to happen to Babylon in chapter 2. Basically describes what's going to happen to Babylon. Because sometimes that's what we get caught up in. God, I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to be obedient. And there's all this wickedness. And then the wicked are going to come and they're going to cause more destruction. And then... What's going to happen to the wicked? Is there, going to, is there going to be any judgment for them? They seem to be able to just get away with everything. They seem to be able to just keep going. They, they seem to keep passing their, their, their laws and their, their policies. They seem to, to keep up with their idolatry and their immorality. And there are examples along the way, certain headlines that come up, and we see certain ones that get caught or the, the, the consequences of their sin catch up to them, the, the, pattern, the, the principle of sowing and reaping. But it seems that overall the wicked get away with a lot. It appears that way sometimes to us, humanly speaking. And in a way, God is teaching Habakkuk the same lesson that we need. That we need to keep our focus upon the Lord. That God's going to deal with the wicked in his time. And there is a judgment coming for the wicked. Babylon will not go unpunished. We have to remain faithful to the Lord. Habakkuk had a mission, had a calling, had a job in a sense to do. He had this message. He had to keep preaching. He had to remain faithful. He had to keep being obedient. He said, I'll take care of Babylon. They are going to be my instrument as Judah continues in their sin. And if they don't repent, if they don't return to me, Babylon will come. But their judgment is coming as well. And then that brings us to chapter 3. We've seen the prophet's burden. Secondly, we see the prophet's benediction. The prophet's benediction. Verse 1 of chapter 3. We read, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid, O Lord. Revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. He says to Habakkuk, or excuse me, Habakkuk prays to the Lord, O Lord, I have heard thy speech. Habakkuk, having heard the judgment upon Babylon, having accepted the burden of the message and the responsibility of preaching the truth, Habakkuk responds with what? With reverence. His knees on the ground, so to speak, Reverential before the Lord, he prays. He prays. Maybe that is some of the things that, or one of the things I should say that's lacking in our response in the midst of this perverse culture in which we live. Maybe we need to be on our knees in prayer more. Maybe we need another dose of humility and we need to get back to the word of God and to our dependence upon the Lord. We think we've got it figured out through maybe conservative politics. And again, I'm not saying we don't have things that we need to do as citizens of the United States. And we need to continue to talk to our politicians, to our legislators, and continue to exercise our freedoms and our rights. But revival isn't going to come through conservative politics. Revival isn't going to come through Supreme Court rulings. We're thankful for them. We want them. But 
We need revival through repentance and humility through a broken and contrite heart before the Lord. Oftentimes before God ever moves in the culture, in the politics, God has to move among his people who are submissive and willing and broken and humble and contrite, who quit trying to figure it out their way and trying to be stubborn and say, Lord, I I got this, I can do this. And we run among the sinful culture and we have some of the same idols and we practice some of the same sins, but just not as bad. We clean it up a little bit. We're, we're, we're comparing some, sometimes ourselves to the, the world standard and say, well, we're not that bad, and yet the world just keeps shifting further and further away instead of measuring ourselves by the word of God. Habakkuk says, Lord, I have heard thy speech, and it brought fear to my heart. He, he, he prays for a manifestation of God's power. He, he's saying, Lord, make yourself known. Revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy. God, if it means that the manifestation of your power is judgment, that's okay, Lord. If it means discipline, if it means chastisement, it's okay, Lord. Because we probably need it. But even in that judgment, in that wrath, remember mercy. Please have mercy on us. He prays for a fresh manifestation of God's power, but also a full measure of God's pardon. Even in God's wrath, he says, please remember mercy. So the prayer is introduced in verse 1, and then in verses 2 through 15, we see the majesty of God. I already mentioned in verse 2 about the fear of the Lord, the need for revival, the need for God's power, the need for God's pardon. But I see in here this need for the fear of God, and was afraid, O oh Lord. We, we need the fear of God, as Brother Mark mentioned in Sunday school this morning, about the fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs in chapter 4. What a, great, what a great definition he gave us of the fear of God and that reverence. The fear of God that allows God to do a work in my life. It might mean chastisement, it might mean punishment, it might mean judgment. But it's a response to God in reverence, in repentance, and in reconciliation. Saying, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. The fear of God. Habakkuk says, Lord, may we be revived in our fear. This culture doesn't fear God. There's an aspect to this prayer that there be a fear of God in the culture. And maybe it will take a severe judgment for the culture to fear God once again. Sometimes that's the only way that man ever listens. And there are some who will still not listen even when God brings cataclysmic judgment. But Habakkuk is willing to say if the fear of the Lord, in order for that to be produced, if it means a severe cataclysmic judgment, Habakkuk's now at the place where he's willing to accept that and say, Lord, do it if you need to. But the fear of the Lord must be at work, must take place in our own hearts as well. We must live in a way that we desire to please the Lord and never do anything that displeases the Lord. In verses 2 through 15 of chapter 3, we see mention of the splendor of the Lord, the brightness of God, his power, his justice, his judgment. Even pestilence and plague is mentioned. 
knowing that the judgment of God may be a literal pestilence or plague, as God has had to do in time past. But there's also reference to the omniscience of God and the omnipotence of God. And then we come down and we look and we see in chapter 3, in verse 3, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. It's interesting that Habakkuk in this prayer, in this psalm, we, we recognize by the end of the chapter that this is actually not just a prayer, it's a psalm. Apparently in the history of Israel from the time this was written, this was also sung. And in this is a reference in verse 3 to Teman and Paran. It's interesting that Teman and Mount Paran are in the region south of the Dead Sea where God had done many miracles in bringing Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. By the inspiration of God, and without reading too much into this, I can't help but think that Habakkuk, by the inspiration of God, mentions these two geographical locations in his prayer because in his mind and in those who were reading and hearing and singing this psalm, they knew exactly what those geographical locations represented. God's providential deliverance, the exodus out of Egypt, God's promises fulfilled, God's miraculous work being done, God's work among his people. And no doubt in Habakkuk's preaching, in Habakkuk's prayer, in Habakkuk's mind, he's wanting God to do the same again. And God can do that. God can bring revival. God can bring repentance. There can be reconciliation among God's people. But sometimes I think we're too clouded and corrupted with worldliness to ever want it. We want the slop of the world too much. We know it's going to cost us too many things to really sell ourselves out to God, to really worship Him, to really dedicate, to really commit. It's going to cost me too much. It's going to cost me this association. It's going to cost me this particular raise or promotion. It's going to cost me too much money. It's going to ruin my status. It's going to ruin my image. It's going to take me down a notch in my lifestyle. And Habakkuk says, we got to get back to the wilderness where we had to depend upon God every day for the very food, the manna, and the quail, and the very providence and the miracles of God for water and for His every step of the way through the wilderness. Maybe we need to get back to that place. And that brings us to the prophet's belief in verses 17 through 19. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. The prophet's belief here we see Habakkuk turning in faith, believing that even if all of the crops, the harvest fails, the fig tree, the fruits, the labor of the olive, the fields, the flock, the herd, if all of that goes away, I still have my God. I can still trust him. Habakkuk realizes that God was bringing Judah to a place but they couldn't depend on their material possessions. They couldn't depend on the strength of their labor. They couldn't depend on their own 
technology, their own wealth, their own riches. They had to be brought to a place where their only dependence, their only place they could turn was to the Lord. They had ignored him for so long. They had pushed him to the outskirts of the society and the culture. They had upset all the reforms that Josiah had brought. They had brought back in immorality and idolatry and all the wickedness and the violence and all the sins that were described there in chapter 1. And Habakkuk realizes that he had to live by faith and faith alone, trusting God. As a matter of fact, the just shall live by faith is a theme for the book of Habakkuk and quoted at least three times in the New Testament. Chapter 2 and verse number 4, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, speaking of Babylon, but the just shall live by his faith. Babylon is depending on its military power, on its wealth, on its might, on its political leadership, its authoritarian rulers, Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar. But the just don't depend on the authoritarian ruler. The just don't depend on their military might. The just don't depend on their material possessions. The just live by faith. Paul will quote that in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 and verse 38. The just live by faith. The just are justified by faith. The just, the justified even a partial use of the word justification, the just, the righteous, the just shall live by faith. We're saved by faith, and then we're sustained by faith. We continue in faith. We're saved by faith, and then we continue in that faith. Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. So he authored our faith, we are saved by faith, and then we live according to the rule of faith. Christ is the finisher of our faith. He says here in Habakkuk 3, we see his belief. We see it referenced in chapter 2 and verse 4, but we see his faith. Again, we look at verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. We see the joy of the Lord. We see rejoicing. Similar to Philippians 4 and verse number 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Habakkuk is about to watch. Babylon come in and move with great destruction. He's seeing it before his very eyes. He's a contemporary, from what we understand, he's a contemporary to Jeremiah, to possibly even Ezekiel, Daniel, and maybe overlapped with Zephaniah, all who preached similar messages and talked about similar views of destruction. Jeremiah particularly describing the destruction of Jerusalem and weeping over it. And Habakkuk realizes it's all gone, even if the fields and the folds and the flock and the herd and the fruit, all of that is gone. He says, I can rejoice in the Lord. Ron Hamilton wrote that great hymn, O Rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistakes. It's hard to have joy in the midst of terrible circumstances, but Habakkuk brings us back to hope. Hope in the Lord. During a time of utter destruction of the culture, the land, of the nation, under great chastisement and destruction and and, and discipline of the Lord for their sin, and all their material possessions seeming to be gone, Habakkuk says, I can still take joy in the Lord. My hope, my faith is in Him. I will joy in the God of my salvation. 
And then verse 19, he speaks of strength from the Lord. The just shall live by faith. We rejoice in the Lord. Our joy is in the Lord. And then we see our strength is from the Lord. He mentioned deer. He mentioned deer's feet. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like hinds feet. Now, some of you are hunters. I don't know if you really want to see the deer's feet. You want to see the broad side of a deer in the center of your scope or as you eyeball that deer. And you want to be very gentle as you take it out, as you pull that trigger. We have deer that come around our property, come around our house. We've had one in particular that seems to enjoy our front yard now and comes. We drove up in our driveway after dark the other night, and Josiah says, Look, Dad, and there's a deer standing right there next to our driveway as we pulled up, and it looks right at us. And there are some of you who'd be like, you know, <laughs> but... You know, I pulled up and then it took off, but that deer has been all around our yard. And there's something about a graceful, bounding deer as it runs away. There's a strength, there's a beauty, there's the ability of that deer to bound through the woods and avoid the difficult places, to be able to get around the trees and the brush. You know, we're getting stuck in all the different briars and brush and hitting branches and twigs, and they seem to just be able to navigate through all that. And we see Habakkuk kind of giving us a little bit of a visual there. That may God give us the strength to navigate through the difficult circumstances of life like a deer can through the woods. And he says even that God would give him strength, give us strength to walk in high places, to go even to the mountaintops. What does it take to get to a mountaintop, to a high place? It often takes uphill, often rough terrain, fatigue, maybe carrying something. If you ever hiked up a hill, if you ever hiked up a mountain, you ever been through some kind of arduous kind of, of hike, you know what it's like. But God gives the strength, he's saying spiritually, to go through, to navigate that rough terrain, to go to that high place. And then when you get there, you look out and you see the beautiful view and you look down and you say it was worth it. Or hopefully it was worth it, right, to, to go all the way up there and you're tired. But you look out and there's a beautiful view. And taking all those pictures. I remember being in Yosemite National Park and we drove on those roads and that 15-pastor van I talked about one time. And we got all the way up there and we got out and we parked. I mean, we parked, we got out, we walked. Unbelievable, the view. Picture after picture after picture. Beautiful. And God can bring us to those high places by his strength even in the difficult days. There is hope. There is hope for a nation. There is hope for a nation, but that hope is in the Lord. And that means that it has to be individual for us as God's people. We have to have that hope and declare that hope and live that hope. I close with a commentator who wrote, Habakkuk's book begins with an interrogation of God but ends as an intercession to God. Worry is transformed into worship. Fear turns to faith. Terror becomes trust. Hang-ups are resolved with hope. Anguish melts into adoration. We've seen today a prophet's burden, a prophet's benediction, and a prophet's belief. May our terror become trust, our hang-up be resolved with hope, our anguish turn into adoration, our worry transformed into worship, 
in our questioning or our interrogation of God be turned into intercession. May our hope be in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the wonderful music. We look forward to more of the challenging music and heart-stirring music that draws our hearts to worship of you. We thank you for this wonderful book, small, considered a minor prophet, but with a major message of hope in spite of some of the worst circumstances that could possibly be imagined. Lord, may that hope in the Lord transform our hearts and our lives that we might live out this hope, that we might serve you with this hope, that we might declare this hope. Lord, may our trust be in you. May we, as just people, justified by faith, not because of our own good works, not because of anything that we have done, but justified by faith in you and your finished work on the cross, then live by faith, saved and sustained by it. May, Lord, we live out this belief and be faithful to you. We pray, Lord, again for you to continue to do your work in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we close, we'll have you turn in your hymnals once again to hymn number 19. Hymn number 19. If you'll stand and find your hymnals, hymn number number 19 as you're standing. Jake will come and lead us. And we're going to go ahead as we close. We're going to sing two stanzas. We're going to sing verses 1, and I believe it's verse 3. I think there's three stanzas, so we'll sing 1 and 3. If God is doing a work in your heart, you can do business with the Lord as we sing. We'd love to help you afterward if there's anything that we can help you with. And we would love to take the Word of God and show you from the Word of God how to help you with that need that you might have. We're going to come, as Jake comes, we're going to sing number 19, stanzas 1 and 3 as our closing hymn today. I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to shines full at his command, and all of the stars obey. There's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known, and clouds arise and tempests blow by order I hope that you will rejoin us at 1.30. I know that it's just an hour and a half away. I know that means a little bit of a time constraint. 
there will be some tables in the fellowship hall. The picnic shelter will be available back here as well. You're welcome to stay through or run in town and come back. And uh, Brother Mark will preach this afternoon. There will be some more special music. We'll keep the service uh, relatively brief and try to have you out of here by 2.30 at the absolute latest. But I hope that you'll rejoin us at 1.30. Again, if we can be of help to you, please let us know. Thank you for the several guests who are with us. And hope that you have a, a good afternoon while we uh, head out for lunch or stay through for lunch. The, the Fullers and some of us will be heading off campus uh, for lunch and then be back uh, shortly. But I uh, hope that you enjoy your lunchtime. We'll hope to see you again at 1.30. I'm going to ask Dan Young if he'll close us in prayer as we're dismissed. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a good lunch. We hope to see you at 1.30.